Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Classic Lenses podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm hosting this podcast from Stoke-on-Trent in the UK. Joining me today are Carl Havens in Gainesville, Florida. Hello, Carl. Good morning, Simon. And we have Johnny Sisson in Chicago. Hello, Johnny. Hello. And from Helsingborg, Sweden, we are joined today by fellow admin of the Facebook group Photography with Classic Lenses, Per Edmund. Hello, Per. Hello. Last week we had a talk about a number of things, but it was largely about LTM 39 lenses and a short and incredibly shallow chat about the Fuji HX1. But before we move on to this week's podcast, here's Johnny with some feedback from last week. Right. Uh, yeah, Simon, we had some uh, great feedback in the Photography with Classes, Classic Lenses Facebook group uh, about the last episode. We're uh, really happy to hear your feedback. Ben Kudo, thanks for your supportive feedback. We're glad you're enjoying the episode. Uh, Phil, we are indeed inching closer to getting you on the podcast, which, believe me, is a goal of everyone involved here. We would love to love to have you on, and it was great to chat with you briefly uh, for a few minutes last week. Um, had some interesting feedback in a side note from Vlad Kern over at the Vintage Camera Collectors uh, Facebook group, and he mentioned to me that uh, he really enjoyed listening to our episode about the Helios 44, but he mentioned that we well, there was a little bit of confusion. We had mentioned the Helios Helios 44 M7 and the 44-7 interchangeably, which they are different lenses. So um, a bit of information there from Vlad. He mentions that the 44-7 came bundled with the Zenit 7, and the 44-M7 came uh, out on the later regular models. So different lenses. I think the difference there is it's the Helios 44-7 versus the MC Helios 44-M7. Uh, I'm not a huge user of these lenses, so somebody... Uh, else here in the group uh, on the podcast might have information about which of those two models they have, but uh, might be a good follow-up for us in a future episode to talk about that. Yeah, I wonder which of the counterfeit versions I had. Since <laughs> <laughs> I've never had a real one. <laughs> I, I actually uh, was, was taken to task on this issue. when I, I had a 44M7 that uh, I was selling on eBay for, for a while, and I had it listed it's a 44.7 and I, I did actually get somebody comment to me and send a message to me um, and instead of telling me straight up what, it, what, what the issue was, it sort of played around with the questions to sort of to test my knowledge and I, I, failed, uh. I failed quite miserably to be honest and he eventually got round to it to say, no, no, it's a different lens and here's, here's a link and I was thinking, well, you could have just sent me that, <laughs> but, but, but no. Uh. Um, hey, one more uh, bit of feedback, jumping back into where we started. Um, I know that uh, Eric Koslus, excuse me if I've mangled that name, um, but he's uh, an admin over in the Vintage Film Shooters group. Um, I spend quite a bit of time over there. And he mentioned that he would like to be doing a podcast as well, which I think is um, a great idea. Uh, their group's been growing uh, fairly actively as well. And um, he, he mentioned us in the fact that he was thinking about starting a podcast about uh, vintage film, which Eric, I would love to participate in that if you're looking for help um, or anyone to speak. So uh, that's uh, kind of nice to see as well that, you know, I think any, anyone who's interested in doing this sort of thing, um, as Simon, who does most of the work here, can probably tell you, it's a lot of work on the back end, or at, le at least at the start it is. Um, but it's, I, I think it's, it's great for people to be diving into a subject that they are very interested in, um, uh, and just get more information out there, you know, in the world about it. So, um, hopefully Eric, you'll get that podcast going too. 
Uh, Simon, I know that you got some feedback from uh, Mehdi Buhalasa as well regarding the podcast. Yeah, he uh, he dropped me a PM uh, yesterday, and uh, he was saying he's you know he's he's really enjoying the podcast and he's he's learning uh, quite a bit from it. But he's uh, it's it seems to be giving him a little bit of a problem when he's driving along. Um, it's 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 interfering with his note taking. Um, so um, I'm not sure if that's really the right thing to be doing there, Mehdi. Uh, but um, it's great it's great that uh, you know we're um, providing you some some education there. I, you know, it's funny because Vlad, Vlad mentioned to me that he had been listening to it in the car also. I think he was yelling back at us, though. Yeah. <laughs> so be safe out there, drivers. Uh, you can also follow us uh, for feedback or give us feedback uh, on the link to the podcast in mflenses.com. Great place to learn more uh, on the topic, too. Thanks for that, Johnny. Now, today we have our third guest on our podcast. We have Pear Edmund. Now, Pear has an interesting history with lenses and cameras and is a well-known member of the so-called Minolta Mafia. Pear, perhaps you can tell us a bit more about your photographic life and why you still bother with Minolta lenses. I suppose that, I, I guess that was the question you were going to ask. Um, there are several answers. Uh, some of them are interesting and some of them are not interesting. I could start with a non-interesting one. My father was not a collector of stuff. He was a hamster. He was a what do you call a pack rat? He collected anything and everything. And um, I have his genes. So when I fell into this uh, classic lenses hobby that we all share, um, I very quickly decided that I need to limit myself or I'm going to become my father. I'm going to fill up the house with classic lenses that I found for a bargain. Um, so one of the ways I decided to restrict myself, constrict my, my choice of lenses was to, to go with things that were related to Minolta somehow. So that's why I'm still going strong with the Minolta lenses and cameras. Um, why I almost seem to avoid all the Russian ones that you all, you all wax poetic about. Um, but that still doesn't answer why Minolta, right? So um, it's probably a longer history than I'm that I'm aware of because I found a used Minolta XD7, just randomly found it with three lenses. And um, looking through the finder with the 51.4, it was, it was a visceral, I need this. I need more of this. This looks fantastic. Um, that feeling, you know, it's not perfect. In, in fact, the finder on the XD7 is, is fairly, um, it's not grainy. It looks grainy. Um, it's uh, they call it uh, acute math or something. Um, it looks odd, and only the things that are really in focus are sharp. So it's, it had that ma this magical feeling. But there's something else behind it too, because as I was looking through this, the finder on this uh, XT7, um, I recognized it. I held the camera in my hands, and I, I felt that this this is how a camera should feel, and this is how a camera should look. And thinking back, I think my mother had Minolta cameras when I was just a kid, like when I was very, very little and didn't care about, you know, labels and and, and uh, product names. So I, I um, think that was a, I remembered something holding that camera. So that's how I got into classic lenses, um, and that's when I decided to to focus on Minolta because. As I found you guys online, I realized there are an infinite number of classic lenses, and I, if I if I go too deep into this, I'm just going to collect and collect and collect. But 
I'm not. I'm, I'm shooting lenses. I'm um, not just collecting for collecting's sake. I try to get rid of lenses I don't use. Not as not, I don't do it as much as Carl does. Carl seems to let go of anything it doesn't use immediately, and I, I, I like that, but I'm just bad at selling off lenses. Um, so the real answer is not because Minolta is the best camera company ever, and you should all be in awe of them. I mean, they have invented quite a few technologies that we take for granted today, but that wasn't the real reason why I chose them. Um, there are things I discover about Minolta every day that I had no I didn't know about, and I'm, I'm you know, I'm still impressed about the company in some ways. Um, impressed with what they did and what they, uh, well, they, they don't do anymore though. They sold the camera division to Sony. I don't know what was it, mid mid nineties something. Um, I, I think that's interesting um, that how Pear described my um, purchase and um, and quick reselling of lenses, because it it it's not totally. Uh, off base and um, and it, it probably reflects something broader about me and that I um, I like to experience new things and I tend to get bored with things after a while and go on to something else and it's probably carried over to lenses but um, but but really with lenses I, I like to uh, I'll see a lens and I'll think that um, oh, that's really cool and then I'll look at photos people have taken and um, and, and I'll buy it and I'll try it for a while but if a, if a lens sits in my camera cabinet for three weeks or a month, um, I'll, I'll just get rid of it because I'll see something else I'd like to buy and um, try to build a PayPal balance. And sometimes when you see me selling a lot of things, what I've been doing is going from a whole bunch of lenses to a smaller number of lenses that are all much better um, quality lenses. Um, I even at one point had a Nikon 1.2 until I dropped that in the floor and ruined it. So. Yeah, I remember that. Carl, you, you also have a special skill for um rebuying lenses that you've sold as well <laughs> i don't even want to talk about that <laughs> okay yes uh, let's not go there <laughs> oh come on that's the best part about about your upgrade to the sony is you're gonna buy back all the lenses you sold so you can try them out on full frame they were no, in I the don't... wrong mount though no but i don't have any um i can't no 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 lenses come to mind that I, I want to buy and try again. I, I still have one mirror, one uh, B lens, and, and, I, and maybe it'll be a really good lens finally uh, on the Sony and not a crappy lens. And um, we'll, we'll see what happens with that. And that's just my personal opinion. Hey, Perry, it's interesting. You know, um, when I, I first started becoming interested in classic lenses, yeah. I think that it actually it happened for two reasons. One, I was on the um, Olympus. Uh, OMD Worldwide Shooters page, yeah. and there was a, a guy on there who I've never seen anymore, and I think he was from Russia, and he was shooting with a Pentacon 200, and the photos were just really cool, and I thought, wow, I, I don't get it. I'm not getting any pictures like that, nothing like that with these kit lenses, and, um, and so I bought that, but then I went up in the attic, and I found an old box of, uh, so Pam's dad was a portrait photographer, mm -hmm. and he used the studio equipment, but he also got into buying cameras. And I, and I found a, um, a, a Canon AE-1 and a Minolta autofocus camera, and it had a, a Minolta Maxim 51.7 on it. And I got an adapter, and I mounted it on the Olympus. And I got to tell you, it was a good lens. It, it had this terrible, fiddly little skinny focusing yeah. ring on the front, which made it hard to use. So I sold it, and I was amazed that people paid more for that blasted lens than I could buy uh, Rogars for. And um, I actually bought two more 
or found two more cheap and sold them just to make some money, like double the amount of money. They were like 95 or $100 people were. You made money off the 51.7 AF? Yeah, they were, they were selling for more than uh, – so, you know, that was back in the time when you could buy a, uh, an MC um, 58 1.4 PG for 50 bucks, yeah. and, um, and you could sell that, that, that plasticky Minolta Maxim for almost $100. I could, I, could never, I could never figure it except that people wanted to put it on a camera. And Simply because people were using Sony cameras uh, that still, you know, they don't even need to adapt those lenses. Just put them on. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I never actually meant to go into Minolta AF. I, 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 it was actually part of my decision not to not to branch out. I, I had decided I was going to do only the Rokers, the, the SRs, the MCs, and the, the uh, MDs. Okay. Um, it was a misunderstanding <laughs> that that caused me to to get my hands on the beer can, the um, 70 to 210 F4 uh, AF. Um, I thought that was an MD lens. Uh, so I bought it off a friend, and when I had it delivered, I was, for, of course, disappointed that I couldn't use it, and I'm, I wasn't about to free lens a 200-millimeter lens. Um, so I had to buy the AF adapter, and that's, you know, that's where I started cheating on my rule um, and got the, got the AF adapter and not just the, the manual uh, lenses. Um, I've, I've, success, I've managed not to start getting Konica lenses. I've drawn the line so far that only things branded as Minolta or for Minolta, the two Minolta systems so far. Um, but, you know, it's, no, it's a fine no, line, and I've only drawn it myself. No no Celtics, no Konicas. I like that. Well, Celtics <laughs> were Minolta made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I can't get Celtics here. I haven't found any. Not even. Oh, if, really? Uh, yeah, not even in the cheapest uh, possible uh, backyard sales are there any Celtics. I wonder if those are more common uh, in other markets. I mean, I know we see this with other lenses as well, but I, those are fairly common in the U.S. market. And I wonder if they were not more actively, you know, sold over here because I see quite a few of them. I yeah, it's a... possible they were only sold there. It's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I, I had a, a Celtic 135. And I, I have to tell you, it was cheap and it was small and plasticky, but it was a good, it was a good lens. It was, it was quite good. It was extremely simple, simple design. I mean, it has to be cheaper. It had had to have been cheaper for them to just manufacture the same optics across the whole range and just putting them into different packaging and selling them all. Because developing separate optics for a cheaper market, you don't do that. Maybe you, you know coat them differently but it's just a manufacturing nightmare to have different pipelines mm. i actually like the 75 to 300 uh, consumer version the af version without the um, uh, without the black metal barrel uh, because it's super super light and it is a 300 millimeter lens and it's it's perfectly fine especially if you post process and that also works very well on even on uh, micro four thirds Hey, you've you've got a quite a um, large collection of uh, of Minolta's, including some you know, quite quite unusual ones. Uh, uh, yeah, one one in particular that that always fascinates me that Minolta, without any kind of irony, uh, produced a very soft lens. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, um, yeah, you you have that lens, don't you? Yeah, it's even called the very soft. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, it's the very soft uh, 85 millimeter uh, to f 2.8 t somewhere around 4.5 I think 
Um, it has, um, it's actually a stepless, um, uh, stepless defocusing adjustment, what do you call it, a, a wheel, no, um, a dial. It has, so it has aperture, it has focus, and it has softness. And um, it's a very special lens construction. It, it contains a, an element meant to change the shape of the bokeballs. Um, it also has a fairly short focus distance for an 85 of that age. It's, it's focused down to 0 0.8 meters, I think, which is also conductive to great bokeh. But um, even at even at softness zero, uh, f 2.8, it's still not it's not tack sharp. It, it still has that very 80s feel. I mean, you may not realize how a soft lens can be an 80s lens, but if you think back to some of the photography you would find in, in for example, model magazines and teen magazines from that era, it seems that the Minolta very soft was everywhere in portrait mm -hmm. photographers' hands. Um, every glamour shot from that time was probably made with this lens or a similar lens. Um, it's really unusably soft at levels two and three beyond. But uh, since since it only changes the shape of the Bokeballs, if you step if you stop the lens down, uh, you just change change the shape, but the sharpness is fine. So at f4 and f5.6, it's uh, it's very very sharp, even with sharpness uh, maxed out. At f8, it doesn't matter if you have sharpness to the maximum or sharpness down. So when you say it changes the shape of the of the, the bokeballs, I mean, what, it goes from what to what? It goes from uh, just plain old, uh, plain old round circles with a little bit of bu uh, soap bubble effect down to, um, I think it's octagonal. Yeah, there's eight, um, eight blades, down to an octagonal, and then as you as you turn the softness, it goes from being octagonal to, to the. Um, how do I say this? Uh, how do I describe this? Um, it softens the edges so that it smooths back into the background. If you had a visible bokeball and you you tune the softness dial, it goes from slight soap bubbles to circles to uh, Gaussian peaks with a bright, higher brightness in the middle and going darker as you move out from the center. So that's also why things become soft. It, bokeball grows. The unsharpness grows. I can see people heading to Google and eBay right now. Yeah, they would. Um, but I mean, it's 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 almost something that you can emulate in post, um, especially if you're you're having a if you if you have a if you have a background at a set distance, just a flat background, it wouldn't matter. You could just do all that at post. Uh, because it's just a Gaussian blur. But since it is actually an effect in the lens, it will change character depending on the distance between the subject and the background. So if you have a deep background, you would get a different effect at every softness and every aperture. Uh, you can play around with that a lot. Um, but as you increase uh, the softness very much, uh, the bokeh walls will become so large that you just get a lower contrast. And at maximum, it just looks really really dumb it looks like you have you're shooting with a very very dirty lens <laughs> but this this lens for example i never imagined i would own one i i thought that one and the uh 250 millimeter f 5.6 uh, mirror lens the one of the shortest mirror lenses uh, those were lenses that i knew were sort of unique to minolta or at least unique in that quality at that level of quality 
but I never imagined I would own them because they were they had fantastical prices even when when I started with classic lenses and even more so right now. But a friend of mine, uh, her father died, and she found these in his collection in the attic, along with a bunch of other lenses too. Uh, and she offered me to buy them because she wanted someone who would not just collect them but also use them. Uh, so that was my promise to her, and that's uh, that was of course a huge, huge win for me. But it wasn't one of these, you know, bargains that someone found finds. Um, I I made a fair deal with her, and once I had presented her with a fair deal, she said, "Well, pay me half that, and we're fine." Uh, but that was my I don't I think I called it my dragon's hoard when I found it. That was a, a good good chest of lenses arriving with the post. Could you could you tell us a little bit more about your your two fifty mirror lens? Because I know that I, I mean you've alluded to it. It's a it's quite a special lens, and it's certainly very very sought after. Yeah, I can I can only imagine why, and I imagine that people are creeps, because it's a very very small lens uh, with a two hundred fifty millimeter reach. So that's probably why people want them. Because in other situations, people usually don't like the the bokeh the the donut bokeh of. of um, mirror lenses uh, but it's it's very very light and it's uh, very very long and very sharp compared to other mirror lenses um, mine is a little bit dinged so I'm not going to sell it but I'm also not going to sell it because I don't want to um, I like mirror lenses I I, um, I also own the, the modern Tokina 300 millimeter f6.3 uh, mf for micro four thirds um, and I mean we all love classic lenses right but truth be told, modern lenses uh, usually beat them out on, on almost every aspect. Uh, the 250 5.6, it's sought after, it's classical, it's strange, but it's, I don't think it's fair that it should cost three times, three times more than the, the modern Tokina because the Tokina performs much better overall. But then again, that's not really why we collect classic lenses, right? No, but I've. Uh, I think I've got to draw you back a uh, thirty seconds there, because uh, there are people shouting at you at the moment about uh, all modern lenses being, uh, you know, outperforming classics uh, uh, in every area. Which it's uh, obviously it's not every area. There are some areas where, it, if you're talking about outright sharpness, perhaps and uh, contrast and things like that. But no, no, no. I would not say that. I would not say that. I would say that uh, some classic lenses, especially if we compare modern, uh, newer. Uh, newer Minolta lenses with older Minolta, Minolta lenses, the um, the sweet spot is very often much sharper than any other modern lens because when they were designed, they were more concerned with center sharpness than anything else. And as as time progressed, and and camera makers and lens makers became became more interested in fighting fighting flare and fighting you know the odd graph the odd effects that we like. Um, they actually managed to lower the contrast, lower the sharpness of, of center, um, of the center. So, uh, especially on micro four thirds, I'm amazed by how how well uh, older lenses perform in sharpness over. You know, I, for example, I have a, a fantastic sparrow shot taken with the 135 MD, the 135 3.5 MD, on micro four thirds without the speed boost or anything. So that's just 2x crop. And the feather detail is fantastic because the center sharpness was so much higher. So, well, newer lenses, modern lenses, they have fewer flaws. They are boring. 
they have they don't have any interesting flair they don't have any vignetting uh, they don't pop the same way they just produce a perfect image and i for one that's not really what i'm looking for in photography i like to choose the lens for the subject and the situation and i want the flair and i want the well i don't actually like the soap bubble effect but you know if, if if you're looking for a special effect if you're looking to frame a subject with an with an amazing bokeh effect you would choose a classic lens that has that you know it's interesting even for street photography which i like quite a bit now um i had so on my fuji camera uh, my xe2 uh, when i bought it i also bought a 27 millimeter autofocus lens because i thought that would be a really good street kit and, uh -huh. and, the, and the pictures were the photos were really boring they're, just, they're sharp nice black and white but um no no pop at all and i'm shooting these in f, f4 to f8 and um and then i thought well for some reason, I don't know why I I, I, need, I should have a zoom, so I bought the XF uh, 18 to 55, which is sort of their medium level zoom lens. It's, I think it's comparable to the 12 to 40 Pro Olympus, and um, same thing there. I've I've taken it out, come home, the shots are okay, and they're all just they're, they're kind of flat and they're nothing special. But if I take my Canon LTM 51.8 out, maybe it's not a fair comparison because it's prime versus that. Um, the, the, the pictures are just right on the tone, not just the 3d pop, but the, the tones, the look of the image, the, the, the whole, the whole package. And so, um, I'm going to Washington very soon today on a flight. And, um, I have, I have that, I have one of those LTM lenses on the camera and two classics. And then there's no autofocus lenses going with me to do street photography. Yeah. Actually, Carl, um, seeing that, uh, and just for the, for, for our listeners, uh, Carl will be leaving us uh, during this podcast, so we, we don't have him for much longer. So I think it'll be uh, good if we can just move it on slightly just to uh, talk about uh, your, your, your new purchase. Ah, sure. I'd be happy to do that. So I, that's all I've been doing all weekend is talking about it on the Facebook page and posting way too many photos. Um so I finally um, got a, a Sony full-frame Alpha 7.2, and um, I'm just amazed at the image quality compared to um, well, my Olympus, which I don't have anymore, and my Fuji XE2, which I will keep as my street camera. It's it's way more than I expected. I I, I expected certainly that the, the the field of view would be larger, and I knew that the minimum focus distance would change in the lenses. But I'm seeing um, bokeh that I never I, that I never knew was possible before. So you know, a Canon FL 51.4, which I've always said is a fantastic lens. That it, get one of them. The price is really low. It's one of the best 50 millimeter lenses. I've always thought that. But it just came alive on the Sony in terms of the bokeh, the color, and 3D pop. I, I took photos at f1.4 that have 3D pop. I took photos at f2 and 2.8 and 4 that have 3D pop. I didn't think that lens could do that, and I didn't even I didn't even think about it or try to get a particular look, and, and it just happened. Um, I, 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 I like everything about the camera. I like I like the menu system, which people complain about. I think it's very intuitive. I, I like the ergonomics of the camera, which people say it's too heavy. I don't think so. Um, the, um, the, the the look of the images is, is fantastic. Um, so, so I'm really pleased. I've got a, a good kit now. I, I consider myself now having three cameras that are really all that I need. The, the Alpha 7 II, 
the Sony XC2 for street and my Canon 7 for film shots, which beats out any of the other film cameras that I've ever had, even much more modern ones. So um, that's my thing about the Sony. I'm, I'm Carl, really yeah. happy right now. Carl, I'd like to just, just um, take you back to a comment you made about, uh, yeah. about the MFD. Um, yep. Sorry, the minimum focus distance, saying it's less on the Sony. That, that strictly speaking, isn't actually no more, true. More, more. Uh, no, it's longer. Sorry, longer. But it, it, it isn't. It's exactly the same as it's uh, on on any system. The only the difference is when you're using it on a crop, uh, whether it be on Fuji or on Micro Four Thirds, you're you're cropping the picture. So therefore, to get the same size image, you you can get the same. You can get a, a larger image from further back, but the actual okay. closeness that you you get to something does not change simply because you change the size of the camera. Okay, just an appearance. Okay, which also affects the bokeh, of course. Okay. You're right, it does a little bit, but the, the, there's a couple of things I don't understand. I, I kind of understand now why I can get 3D pop, because I posted a question about it on the uh, Alpha 7, Alpha 9 Facebook page, and someone explained it in a way that did make sense. But um, I don't understand all of a sudden seeing a tremendous amount of bokeh. And one, one of the pictures I posted this weekend is a glass ball hanging, and behind it, Every single shrub and every tree and everything is made up of a bunch of balls. It's it's too much almost, but um, I never had anything like that on the other cameras. They just, they don't do it, and I don't know why that's happening. This is at the point, and if we had this conversation in the chat, this is the point where I would break in and say, you know, it's actually because this and this. Yeah. You want me to do that? Yeah, do it. <laughs> because if you're framing your shots the same way as you used to do, okay, that means you're closer to the subject. Yeah. And that means the difference between your distance to subject and the subject's distance to background is much greater. You're much closer to the subject, and right. the background is still as far off. Okay. So, so that's the that's the proportion that has changed significantly, and that's why you get much more bokeh in the background if you frame the shots the same. And I and I am well, I, I probably am because just having it for two days and. And um, and not use that camera before, um, you, you could be right. And you know, um, earlier someone asked me, I don't know if we were being recorded or not. Why did I buy this camera and not the three? Since the three is out now, um, it's because um, a friend of mine has virtually every Sony camera that's been made in the Alpha Seven series, and so I've had a chance to play with all of them, some more than others. But but I have. Um, had an opportunity just a few weeks ago to use an Alpha 7 R3. And yeah, it's a fantastic camera. It's just, it was wonderful. But um, from, you know, I'm not a professional photographer and, and I take pictures that are okay. I don't display them in uh, galleries and things. I hang them in my house. And so this camera for me is, 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 is perfect. And, 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 I, and I didn't want to spend an extra thousand dollars to get a, a small incremental improvement in the image quality that maybe I wouldn't even be able to see. So is this the part where I'm supposed to throw shade on Sony now? Yeah, trash it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was supposed to throw shade on Sony. Oh, go, supposed... per, yeah. <laughs> per, per go first. Okay. <laughs> I bought the Sony a7 II as a present to myself uh, after we moved, uh, moved to Skåne, uh, the southern part of Sweden. And um, I, um, I didn't hate it instantly, but it, uh, it never grew on me. I never adapted to it, or um, there are just so many things to nitpick about it that I don't like. It, uh, it got scratched up. The sensor dusted up on me much, much sooner than the Olympus ever has. Um, and I've had some bad experience with Olympus, too. There's, their customer support really needs 
well, help. Um, but I, um, the Sony just, there are gradients in the JPEGs that shouldn't be there. There, There's no, uh, you can't, as with the Olympus, you can just re, uh, remake a JPEG from a RAW file in the camera. You can't do that on the Sony for some reason. Uh, the JPEG quality is much, much worse on the Sony if you if you use JPEGs. But for all the things that I hate about the Sony, it's, I, I mean, I can't deny that the image quality is better. It, it has to be. It's a huge sensor compared to the Micro Four Thirds one. But I, I prefer the Olympus as a camera, but, you know, sensor technology-wise, image quality-wise, I can't deny that the Sony is better. So, I mean, I use it, I use it especially for portrait photography and for... Uh, for uh, very very dark shots, but even then, the um, Olympus with the Voigtlander 0.95 uh, performs better in my hands than a Sony does with the 1.4 lens, and I don't have a 0.95 for the Sony. Uh, I'm guessing that it's with the the stabilization on the Olympus works better than it does on the Sony, but I really don't know. It's probably clouded by hatred for the Sony that I can't really evaluate them against each other so when i took my sony out um on saturday morning to a farmer's market wherever andy and i go and get vegetables and things um i took a bunch of shots and i got home and half of them i didn't nail the focus and i thought oh my god you know what what is the deal and then I th my first thought was well you know i've never used this ais nikor 51.4 for street kind of photography. It's not a good lens for that. It's too fiddly, I guess, with the focus. But I knew that I, I had zoomed and had perfectly focused on people and that they weren't in focus. And then um, in the got great photos. They were all really sharp. And um, and then I and then I was, I was talking to Simon in, in the afternoon and he I showed him my, a screenshot of my LCD and he said, oh, that's interesting. You have Ibis turned off. <laughs> Yeah, and, and in the morning, the uh, shutter speeds were like between 150 and maybe a, one 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 hundredth of a second. In the afternoon, they were up in the almost eight eight thousandths, and so it was the camera was moving in my hands. But I've got it, I've got that fixed now. It's yeah. good that I have help. <laughs> no, I know the Sony system pretty well. I mean, I've had the camera for quite a while, and it, it's not the problem. Isn't that I? Well, I guess the problem is that even though I've had it for all this time and I know all the the tweaks and that you can you dial on the wheel to change something and you click right to get the options for that thing for example you can set the iso range pretty quickly on the on the rear wheel but um even then going into the menu system i'm i'm looking for a specific thing i know exactly what it does i know where it should be but it isn't there because it's it's under some kind of it's under a different heading and it's on page seven of the of the tool symbol heading i don't get it it's not yeah. And it has these little undocumented features that support doesn't even know about. That, for example, you get, um, I get these um, shadows coming from the top of the picture when using uh, Minolta AF lenses if first curtain electronic shutter is on, which is, it's, it's documented, it's almost documented somewhere in the manual, but it's, for why does it even do that? The Olympus doesn't, so why does the Sony? Yeah, I don't. Bizarre. So don't. Yeah, don't use those Minolta lenses. <laughs> yeah. So I was gonna say regarding, I guess, all the way back to the start of the conversation, um, where Para was talking about how he came to uh, Minolta. Um, what struck me is that um, it's it's fundamentally an emotional connection, is the way I understood it, Per. And yeah. 
and it, and that's funny because it is for me too. It very much so. Um, the my first real camera that I got in nineteen oh I don't even know if I want to say the year um, nineteen eighty five uh, was a Minolta X seven hundred with uh, an MD fifty one point seven. Um, I'd also had a twenty eight millimeter Minolta f two point eight that you know everybody in the world had and i had a 70 to i want to say a 70 to 200 with macro focusing on the end and that was my very first real camera kit and I proceeded from there to dive you know fully into photography and it was all i ever wanted to do after that and i i do credit a lot of that um at least in some measure to the the first camera that i really had to work with which was the minolta x700 which even to this day, I still have it. Um, and I, I find that it's still one of the best viewfinders I've ever experienced on any camera. Um, and there, to, for me, the reasons for that, there's a, there's a, there's a couple things. Um, first of all, it's just a big, bright viewfinder with a great view um, and extremely logical uh, displays of um, aperture and shutter. And it, it, to me, it just melts completely out of the way. And I think her, you were kind of mentioning this with another Minolta model, but they're, I, they did an excellent job with viewfinders. They just, they get out of the way. They give you the information, all the information you need, and that's all they do. And um, I, I kind of credit the fact that I never thought of an upgrade path being a, you know, a Nikon or a Canon, which were the, the, the big names of that era. I, I never really even considered that because I would look through those cameras and to me, the viewfinder displays were simply not as logical. And I'm talking about everything up to cameras like the, you know, the F3. They are to me nowhere near as logical as a Minolta viewfinder. Um, and I still feel that to this day. And I look through a lot of cameras every single day and I, I think they really got it right. Um, to me, an exception with that on the Nikon side would be something like, you know, an, an FE2, which is essentially the same viewfinder display as a Minolta. So I'm, I'm certainly expressing a bias here. But to me, the, the number one thing an SLR needs to do is get the hell out of the way and let you make pictures. And I, and I have always experienced that with, um, with the Minolta products. So, you know, my connection is very much emotional there. Um, even the 51.7 lens, I mean, it was, you know, when I started shooting uh, mirrorless, um, it was one of the first lenses I adapted because I had it. I always loved it. Um, always did a great job. I finally upgraded the, uh, that lens for shooting my Minolta film bodies to a 51.4 MD, uh, the version three, um, which I, to, for, for my money is one of the, you know, the best classic 50 millimeter lenses you can get. I think it's um, optically, it's extremely well made. It was made, you know, very late up into the game, probably till, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, right around the year 2000, late into the Minolta system. Uh, manual focus system so you can find great examples of that lens that are extremely well made and they perform really well and you know another I, I guess emotional attachment for me to that lens is that when I have my Minolta system you know I always wished for other lenses and things like that never had the money for them and I I can remember visiting Central Camera in Chicago where I work right now and standing at the used lens counter and staring up at the Minolta 51.4 and, and just being like, wow, I wish I could get that lens. And it was, you know, it was probably back in the day, I don't know, it was like $200, 250 which was, might've been a million. It was completely out of reach for me, but I always wanted to get that lens. And I finally picked one up uh, about a year ago. 
Um, and it's just an amazing lens. And I, I really enjoy shooting it on my Minolta film cameras. Don't use it so much on the, on the digital stuff, um, but certainly could if I wanted to. So, uh, you know, just kind of circling back to Pierre's point, I, you know, great viewfinder camera that just feels right, um, sort of gets out of the way, lets you focus on making images. Uh, to me, that's the mark of a great um, SLR. And that brings us to Sony. And I guess my issues with um, the Sony cameras just generally is I feel like they are very much in the way. Uh, and I, and I, I, I just can't connect with the controls on them. Um, and ultimately, I know that for me, I need a camera that um, doesn't uh, mediate too much between me and what I want to do. And I just don't find that with the Sony. I think they're great image making cameras. I have, I, you know, that I, I have nothing bad to say about them in that regard. I just don't find them to be the most intuitive cameras. Um, and I, I, I like cameras that have um, a level of direct control to uh, camera settings um, that, again, helps that camera just kind of disappear in my hands. Um, I guess my other issue with the Sonys, I mean, I, I, they're great cameras, but price-wise, they're really pushing up in price. I mean, the, the A9 is retailing for $4,500. Um, the Leica M10 is retailing for $6,800. That's a significant change. But I mean, once you're in for <laughs> pushing five grand, I mean, I just, I, if it was me, I would probably stretch a little bit further and try for the M10, especially given the fact that I'm only going to mount, you know, manual focus lenses on it. Um, I would never buy a system lens for, honestly, for either camera. I would never probably be buying M lenses. And I would definitely, if I had a Sony, not be buying uh, Sony lenses. So um, the Sonys, I think, are, like I said, fabulous cameras. I have no issue with them as image making devices. I just don't find them to be, uh, have a kind of a level of intuitive use that I, I think I would enjoy. Um, and I say this as someone who, you know, I don't even really like the, it, my, my, my path to kind of where we are with digital right now was I started with, you know, Canon um, DSLRs and never really enjoyed using those either. So, you know, to me, I, I, I don't make my best images if I'm using a camera that I don't enjoy using. So that's always going to be, I think for me, a, um, a, a primary decision maker as far as what camera I'm going to work with. Well, you you know, I'm a, a big fan of enjoying you. If you enjoy your equipment, then you tend to take better photos. So I, sure. I, I completely get where you're coming from there. Um, just want to just say something about the, 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 the price points there. I think the, the A9 is an expensive camera, but it's also a very specialist camera. Um, mm -hmm. It's pretty much primarily aimed at the, at the sports market. Um, when you look at the a7 prices in particular uh well carl's just picked up a, an a7 mark II. okay it's a three-year-old camera now but you can that you can buy new but you're it's you know not far off a thousand dollars and they've just launched the mark three of the a7 uh, which is um launched at two thousand dollars although i think that's two thousand dollars plus sales tax so uh it's not a when people in in Europe look at the price of that, it's not it's not a straight. You can't do a straight conversion. There. Yeah, right. And over here, it's thirty two hundred dollars plus tax. So that's to me that's that's really significant. Well, know? the the A seven A seven Mark three thirty two hundred. I thought it's two thousand. Uh, A seven R three. No, no, no Mark three. A oh, seven Mark three. Yeah, I guess I'm talking about the A seven R three. Yeah, different camera, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
but that's is that the uh, uh i i guess i'm looking at current you know current in the current cameras new in market prices at the moment right i mean of course used is going to be a little bit different but are significantly different, of course. Yeah, but the, the, I'm uh, talking specifically about the A7 Mark III, right? Um, which has just been launched, and uh, and I think we we've we've got to talk about it really because yeah, it's it's really making waves in the uh, well in the camera world in general, and uh, you know with it being mirrorless, it's something that's um, it's obviously going to be of interest to people like ourselves who like to use manual focus lenses, but when I when I say about it, it's making waves, it's you know, you look on uh, forum forums such as um, DP Review, or you go onto um, onto Facebook and look at uh, like the Fuji X photography or Fuji Love, um, and it's it's quite fascinating to see the reactions of uh, people from uh, of other users, whether it be Canon, Nikon, Fuji. I mean, normally speaking, when you go onto a Fuji site and somebody brings something out, uh, it's just a complete. Um, rant about how rubbish it is compared to Fuji, um, whereas that's not been the case uh, with the uh, with the A7 Mark III. It's really making people think, especially when it's coming, you know, just you know, a couple of weeks on the heels of the uh, the new Fuji H. X HX one I can never remember the name of that, um, <laughs> and um, yeah, when that's that's a you know it's got the X trans sensor, it's got IBIS, which you know many people have been waiting for all, for a long time. Yeah, you can go onto a Fuji forum and you and it's the many people are saying it's just too little, too late compared to what um, Sony yeah. have just landed. I believe there is something called the upgrade path, at least the. The companies want us to think that way um, that you have one camera and you're thinking about upgrading and for us simon you and me we already own the a7 ii and um, when we look at the a7 III, we accept that it's better in many many ways the bsi sensor for me is a big thing but it's not worth it for us to upgrade to it it would have to be much better and for not quite as much money uh, to be worth it but if we were to upgrade even further i mean what would our next step be for me, the A9 is an amazing machine. I would not spend uh, $5,400 or, or uh, euros on it. I, I would not. I would rather spend that on, a, on some kind of medium format digital camera like the GFX 50S uh, because that would be a significant upgrade. That would give me a wider view. That would give me access to medium format lenses in a different way. And apparently, I can still use my Rockcores. Um, many, mm -hmm. many, many Rockcore lenses actually have an image circle that almost fill out the frame of the 40 by 30 uh, sensor on the GFX 50S. So if I were to put down more money, I would put it on a digital medium format. I would not get another 35 millimeter camera. It's just not worth it for the upgrade path. But if you are on APS-C right now, and you see, you keep seeing these better and better 50, uh, 35 millimeter cameras coming out, the full frame digital cameras, you are getting more and more intrigued. You're, you're trying to do the fanboy thing and say that it's not good enough. It's, you know, they're just, it's so expensive. I'm, I'm so satisfied with my own system, but you can't help but be attracted to the, the thought of a bigger sensor, especially if you're already using lenses that have a larger image circle available. If, you, if you're invested in a digital system and you already have native lenses, of course, it's not that much fun. There are some people who would just throw out or sell an entire older system. Um, and we could benefit from buying their stuff. But um, I think it's it's tantalizing if you're already on APS-C 
the thought of getting an even bigger sensor for not that much more money. Um, I think that's why you're seeing even fanboys uh, really thinking about getting one. Yeah, and I, I would I would actually agree with that. Um, and, and speaking, you know, about this camera, the the A seven three versus the R three. Um, yeah, I mean, great great price point. I, I I would, if I was in the market for such a camera, I would absolutely consider it. But it, you know, again, my my issue with that camera is going to be um, the user interface for it. And I, mm. you know, I I, I am I hope. I like to think I'm not a Fuji fanboy because I haven't bought a Fuji camera in five years. Um, uh, and I, I do think that there's, you know, you know as I said, um, I have no issue whatsoever with Sony's cameras in terms of image making devices. I, for me, it's a completely a user interface issue and it's not a camera that I would uh, be interested in buying for that reason. If Sony brought out a uh, an A7 Mark 3.2 or something like that that had a shutter speed dial on the top, that might change your mind. <laughs> Possibly. Only I... <laughs> a shutter speed dial. Yeah, only a shutter speed dial. That's like it. The X, like the X700. Yes, that's it. Only a shutter speed dial. Um, no, I mean, I, I, would, I would almost go as far as to say I don't know that I will ever buy another digital um, interchangeable lens camera. And I... Mm -hmm. I yeah, I, to and the reason I say that is because ultimately, if I'm shooting those lenses um, and looking for uh, that level of, I guess, image quality or the, the look I'm looking for, I get that from shooting full frame 35 millimeter film and scanning it. And that's, you know, that that's kind of just at this point where I am with it. If there's something that came out, I guess, in the future that um, was. Uh, really that I, I felt was an amazing user, user interface device full frame. Well, I, I should, that exists for me. That would be a Leica M10 because I've, I've held that camera. I shot it hands-on and it, it, it's, it, it's a remarkable piece of um, pure simplicity in terms of photography. And that if I was going to go anywhere, I would probably go there at some point. So, it, you know, I, I don't, the, I guess the perfect, the perfect mirrorless digital camera for me um, does not exist at this point. And if it does in the future, I would definitely be interested in it. Um, but I, I'm not seeing it from, so, you know, certainly Fuji doesn't make a full frame, you know, digital mirrorless. Like as Pierce said, they make the medium format, which is interesting. But again, you're in a whole different price category as well. So, you know, they're, they're just out of reach for me. So a camera like that is out of reach for me in terms of just pure financial resources. But, the, you know, the perfect full frame um, mirrorless probably doesn't really exist for me at this point. Um, and if I was going to do anything, I would probably stretch towards the M10. Going, going back to what uh, uh, Pear was saying, um, I absolutely also completely agree with what he was saying in terms of the upgrade path. And, yeah, uh, I've got as much as much as I'm impressed by the the Mark Three. Um, I've, you know, one I can't afford one anyway. But if I could, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I don't I don't think I would do it. In fact, you know, I'm I'm still probably actually more drawn to the A7R2. Um, yeah, and I keep on telling myself that I don't need 42 or 46, however many megapixels it's got. But the 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 BSI sensor is something that really does attract me. Um, yeah. and that's obviously a, like like Pear was saying, it's a big deal with the with the Mark III. Um, yeah. and just to 
for the, for the sake of uh, this this conversation, the the BSI sensor is a technology that uh, cuts down on noise um, in such a way that it allows you to shoot at uh, higher ISOs with 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 less noise. So it's um, it's very attractive from that from that point of view. But again, that is still not a compelling enough reason to, uh, for me at least, to 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 sell what I I currently have. Yeah. Um, now, I'd um, I want to take the conversation back to Minolta. Um, and because I've there's there's something that I want to ask the the, the two of you actually, seeing that you're uh, both Minolta fans, um, and that's uh, you, you hear about lenses like the the fifty eight one point two, um, which is you know it's got this legendary status with with Minolta uh, fans, and uh, there are different versions of it, and. Uh, but the the last version, which is not strictly the same lens, it's it's uh, obviously it's different as the uh, fifty one point two, uh, which is one of the MD three lenses, one of the uh, last last of the line, um, and I've I've tried quite a few I've I've uh, of these lenses. I've I've tried the fifty eight one point two and I've tried the fifty one point two MD three, and and in all cases with all the Minolta lenses that I've ever tried. I always like the last of the line. I I really don't have a uh, I, I don't particularly like the older ones. And uh, I know that people talk about the colours of Minolta, and in particular with the older uh, lenses, they talk about some kind of Minolta glow, which I find horrible. Um, but yeah, the 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 true Minolta fans love this Minolta this Minolta glow. But it seems to me that uh, Minolta. Uh, when they were designing their lenses, they designed that out, and they must have designed that out for a reason. And I just wonder why it is that so many Minolta users sort of cling on to these uh, these older looking lenses. I agree that there's um, there is a Minolta glow to the older lenses. Uh, I, I've used the 58.4 interchangeably with the uh, very soft 85 uh, 2.8. I, I feel that the effect you get from the 58 uh, 1.4 is very, very similar to what you get on maximum softness, sorry, not maximum softness, on, on the first softness step on the very soft. So maybe, this is speculation, but maybe they designed it out because you don't want a lens that can only be used for portraiture. You want a lens that can be used for anything. So you make a lens specifically for portraiture, uh, both the uh, both the very soft, of course, and the um, uh, one one thirty five STM. No, sorry, STF with the controllable uh, controllable background softness. Uh, you make these special lenses for the special occasions, and then, then you generalize the rest of your lenses. Um, I've actually not tried the 58 1.2 because looking at comparisons online, I decided that the 1.2 I wanted was the 50 1.2, the newest version, just like you said. And it's amazing. I I really I'm really impressed by how well controlled flare and um, and fringing is on that lens, for example. Even I mean, it it is the newest uh, type of MD, but still, it's much better controlled on the 1.2 than on my on all the 1.4s I've tried. And I don't quite understand it, but I like it. Um, it I, I'm not actually sure what people mean by the Minolta glow. I, there is a glow, like I said, I've seen the glow, but there's also there's also the fact that to me at least, the glow isn't just the purple and green fringing you usually see, see with old lenses. There's a pink glow to Minolta lenses, um, to the 1. to the 51.4 MD1 and MD3. There's a pink glow. There's a pinkish glow. Um, 
I haven't seen that in many other lenses. Um, yeah, I, I, when I hear Minolta Glow, I, I guess I think that it's referential to Leica Glow, and I think it's probably more a, a marketing thing or a something that was maybe aspirational for some users. I, I got to say, I mean, again, my my use of these lenses is almost entirely on film, and I've never seen or experienced this Minolta Glow thing on film, so I I really don't know. I can't speak to it at all. Um, I mean it, you know, in faster lenses, I, I think the other thing that that's important to maybe keep in mind and understand is that, you know, most lenses, um, that have a 1.2 aperture were really probably never designed to be shot at 1.2. They were designed to give you the benefit of a brighter viewfinder, uh, with open aperture metering at F 1.2 so that in a dark situation, you can actually see what you're focusing on in the viewfinder, but you're still probably going to be stopped down a hair. So I, you know, I, I guess, um, the usefulness of a, of a 51.2 at 1.2, I don't know was ever mostly the point of having that lens, you know, and I, and I, and I do think it's hard to, um, judge lenses on formats and systems that they weren't, weren't initially built to be used on. Um, so it's, to me, it's, it's hard to judge the character of those lenses, putting them on, you know, even a full frame mirrorless camera of some type, because, you know, they were designed to be used on different systems. And I, I do think that at least for me factors into, you know, some judgments I make about lenses when I, when I see them, even in the group, um, looking at, you know, samples of photos from certain lenses is that, you know, um, they're being used a little bit differently. We use them differently than they were intended to be used. So I think that that's something to consider also with the character of the lenses. One very, uh, one very, a, a big difference is how very wide lenses perform on uh, the Sony, for example, with a very deep sensor stack, where you get bad corners, you get really strange mm -hmm. effects mm -hmm. on the corners with very with, with some very wide lenses that you would not get on film because right. film doesn't behave that way. It just gets light and it makes a picture. The, right. Whereas Sony <laughs> has this problem where, where light strikes it at a, an angle that is too low. It just never, it doesn't catch all the lights. So you get vignetting that you would not get with film or with a, with a shorter stack. Yeah. Um, and, and the full frame, like, a, you know, back to the, the, um, the M nine ha would have the same issue um, uh. to the point where, you know, the newer versions of the Voigtlander lenses have actually been redesigned specifically to work well with, you know, full frame, um, full frame sensors. Exactly. Um, the super wide Heliar version. Yeah. Two yeah. Yeah. And I, it's interesting. I even had a conversation with, um, the Leica lens, uh, representative at when he was visiting at central camera and I asked him, you know, we, we had a little conversation about this and we were talking about the latest generation of, um, like his M lenses. And he even sort of confirmed for me that really all lenses being designed at this point by everyone are assuming that some correction is taking place in the camera um, via software to correct for, uh, well, I guess we would not call imperfections, but m much of the world would call imperfections in lens quality. Um, so so really anything that's being designed modern lens wise is assuming that 
that some of that correction is happening in camera via software, which I really found to be kind of fascinating and maybe a testament to how good a lot of our classic lenses are is they were designed, you know, you had to get all of it right in camera on film. And that was a huge, um, a huge bar to set when, you know, today it's very easy to just make everything optically absolutely perfect. And then, but, but not to actually get it perfect with the optics, you're making it, you know, the benefit of all the great optic designs and coatings and everything, but then taking it into camera, knowing that it's going to be fixed in the camera via camera software. So to me, that says a lot about the nature of these older lenses and how well, well designed and built they were. Yeah, that is interesting. That is interesting because if you, I mean, they could probably make corrective glass to compensate for it, but that right. would mean more glass and that yes. would mean more weight. And that yep. in itself would mean a loss of light and possibly quality. Right. So Absolutely. correcting digitally is not a perfect solution, but if it leads to lighter, faster, cheaper lenses, I'm all for it. Right. Exactly. Well, on that note, um, I want to say thank you, Pear, for being a great guest today. And we've pretty much come to the end of the podcast. So, uh, Johnny, perhaps you could round things off by telling people how they can follow you on social media. Oh, you can find me in the Photography with Classic Lenses Facebook group. Uh, also uh, online on Instagram is the best place to find me. I'm at Sisson Photography there. And you can find me uh, almost every day behind the camera sales uh, counter um, at Citro Camera Company in Chicago. And Cole. Probably the best place is on the Photography with Classic Lenses Facebook page, but also on Instagram. It's Carl Havens, all lowercase with an underscore in between. And then I have a relatively active Flickr account, and it's just my name, Carl Havens, with a capital K and a capital H. And Pear, how can people keep up with you? Well, every day in the uh, Photography with Classic Lenses group on Facebook, of course. and. Uh, I do have quite a lot of photos collected on Flickr as Per Edmund, all in lowercase, no spaces or anything, and on Instagram as Edmund Per, the other way around. And I can be found in a few places. I'm on Instagram as Simon P. Forster, that's all one word. Uh, you can find me as Simon Forster on Flickr, um, and I have an eBay shop which you can do a seller search for. It's Fozzy, that's I T S F O Z Z Y. And you can find all of us in the Facebook group Photography with Classic Lenses. I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast and it'll be great if you can join us again next week. Goodbye. I think we should uh, touch on it, especially about the fact that Cole's got a new camera. So, uh, oh, and oh, James yeah. as well. So, uh, yeah, right. We can talk about why you chose the, the Mark II instead of the Mark III. Exactly. Oh, money, that, that's easy. Money. <laughs> yeah. Can you make it a bit longer? Like, mon, no. <laughs> yeah, <it's> money. <laughs> I can say a little bit more than that, yes. And, and okay. I think it'd be particularly interesting to get um, Pear's take on, on the Sony A7, um, A7 II. Um, because I don't like it. Exactly. Okay. Can you say two pair again? Because it sounded kind of like Tupac, and I thought that was really cool. When you said, over to pair, and I was thinking it would sound like Tupac. And then I was thinking of pair like Tupac, like a rock or a rapper. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and what are you, not had, yeah, sure. not had your coffee yet this morning? Charlie? No, I, yeah, well, actually, I got one cup. <laughs> and then the girlfriend, I realized, made like normal amount of coffee, not like Johnny's home on his day off amount of coffee. So I have like half a mug of coffee in me. So I'm already, the anxiety that I'm halfway through half a mug of coffee is all over my ass right now. <laughs> You've got more, haven't you, uh, Johnny? 
Feedback wise? Yeah. Oh, that was I, it, I, man. I, I, I sent you some. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, hold on. Oh, sorry. Hold on. I probably missed. Did you email it or did no, you? No, it's a, it's in the chat. It's in the chat. Okay, hold on. Yeah. I'll jump over to that and I can pull some out of there. Um, let's see. Yeah, it was straight after the bit where do you have any more feedback, Simon? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. Oh, oh, okay. I, I'll tell you what I'll do. Then I'll say uh, I'll I'll mention and then have you say it. Does that work? No. Because that's even less work for me. I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce it either. Great. I'm I'm gonna be off for just about three minutes while I run down to the get rid of some of this coffee. Or I'm gonna burst. Mm. Yeah. yeah no Can you get me a cup? I need. He was gonna get rid of coffee. Oh no! You know no, I don't mean. want that. No, that's that's no. Okay. You can hear me, right? Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. All right. All right we all just right. weren't listening. Um... Yeah, uh, okay. That's well. All right. <laughs> The, uh, that Primatar uh, of uh, gold, sure. which looks like quite a nice lens, actually. Yeah, uh, it's ridiculously well built. Yeah, I mean, the engineering on it, you know, you could, it's, it's, it's just ridiculous, absolutely. Yeah. Please, ridiculous. <laughs> please don't say tank. I'm so tired of people saying tank. Yeah, no, tank should only be used to refer to everything. Russian everything is built like tanks. I don't, I real, I can't stand <laughs> it anymore. I need people need to stop doing that. 